Wanya and welcome to the Deadly Discussions podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Harrison. This is season two of the podcast, and we're so excited to bring you 30 new guests over 30 fresh episodes. Now, these episodes wouldn't be possible unless, of course, we had sponsors. And one of those sponsors is Talcha Technology. Talcha Technology is an indigenous business specializing in IT design, website integration, and app development, among other things. The name Talcha comes from the founder, Alan Holmes' great-great-grandmother, Maria Talcha, a bachelor woman also known as Queen Maria of Childers. She was a key figure in the community post-colonization and was one who always brought the gold out of people around her, both black and white. Alan aims to have his business create a legacy of bringing the gold out of everyone around him, both black and white. So it was no um, problem having Alan sponsor this because the ethics and values perfectly align. So thank you, Alan, and thank you, Townsha, and all the guys and girls for all the hard work and the sponsorship towards the podcast. Now sit back and enjoy this episode and make sure you like it, share it, subscribe to the channel, and uh, most of all, enjoy. Welcome to Deadly Discussions. I'm your host, Isaac Harrison, and this is a podcast on social entrepreneurship where we interview uh, all sorts of entrepreneurs and business professionals who are using Profit for Purpose. Um, today's uh, session is very unique because it's the start of season uh, two, which I'm so excited to share with you all. And usually I do an acknowledgement to country, but I'm actually on my grandfather's country, Cubby Cubby country. So I'd like to say, Wanya, welcome to country and welcome to this uh, episode of season two with my guest, Darren Goodwell. Welcome to the show, brother. Hey, mate. How you going? Yeah, good. Thanks. So uh, we'd like to start with uh, Back to the Origins for all of our uh, guests, where it all you know began, what was your upbringing like? And it really helps uh, show our listeners uh, the different paths that a lot of, uh, you know, particularly you being in a, a First Nations man, you know, the path that you took to get to where you are today. I think a lot of us, it's the road less traveled. So, you know, where's your mob from and uh, where'd you grow up? Actually, um I spent a few years there on the Kabi Kabi country in the Sunshine Coast. So I went to uh, went to high school at Nambour High. Yeah, um, wow. But I was born and and up to that time raised in Mount Isa, so Kalkadoon country, um, out in northwest Queensland. However, my grandmother's country, and I'm a descendant of the Kokoberan peoples from over on Cape York near Karanyama. Yeah. So um, my uh, great grandmother and then uh, her daughter. Um, were born and raised on a cattle property over there called Van Rook. And yeah. um, then um, through different kind of means of government policy, um, they, um, they they were allowed to stay on country. Um, yeah. However, some of their family was removed and taken up to Marpoon in the very tip of, uh, of Cape York. So, um, yeah, I identify as a descendant but i haven't been through law so i'm not an aboriginal man in my uh yeah out of respect for for law yeah wow and it's interesting how you put it and the first one i'd like to ask um you know what do you what do you think the game with the dispersion you know often with the colonization which happened to many countries across the globe yeah you know, and a lot of our mob aren't some are getting moved you know six hours drive away from their homes Others are getting moved up the road. Um, yeah. You know, what, what do you think the the ideology with you know dispersing us was it you know, we're thrown into a 
a new community where we've got four or five other different tribes who don't speak the same language? Um, well, yeah, historically, the process of colonization was about access to land and the, the wealth that could be created and the resources of that country, um, including the people, the indigenous peoples of that country. So the colonial project of Australia was very much about land and, and in fact, the state of Queensland, when it was created as a colony, its very first department that it created was the Department of Lands. Yeah. So the Department of Lands is, is, is how you, you achieve those very first and primary objectives. So uh, the acquisition of country, um, and then as you acquire country and you impose colonial control, um, you also then start to wonder, as the colonial powers do, about the value or the place yeah. of those original inhabitants. So um, it's interesting that last year as the anniversary of Lieutenant Cook's sailing up the east coast of the continent, yeah. um, there, was, there was some acknowledgement uh, of the histor historical fact that Lieutenant Cook was given a set of orders by the Admiralty yeah. of England on this journey. And um, sometimes they're known as the secret orders, but, you know, they're not that secret. Yeah. Um, and so explicit in those instructions to Captain, to Lieutenant Cook was uh, a requirement that he seek the consent of the natives to acquire uh, adequate land yeah, wow. for the crown, for the king. Yeah. So Lieutenant Cook had in his orders explicit direction from the Admiralty to seek the consent of the natives to acquire appropriate land. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's at the very heart of the Australian experience of colonisation. Yeah. And that original choice yeah, that Cook chose to unlawfully proceed. Um, yeah. If you were to think about our, Australia's first illegal arrival, it's yeah. Lieutenant Cook. <laughs> if you yeah. were to think about the first unlawful entry, it's his failure to, to obey the orders that were given him. That's and right. so today we stand, you know, on our country um, and today the, the standard is still the same. It, we want it with yeah. our consent and it's to yeah. only be with our consent. So uh, yeah. until that consent is issued, then, yeah. um, you know, we've got a bunch of illegals here. <laughs> That's right. And so we don't, I don't dive down too far down the rabbit hole. Uh, we look at the way that the Commonwealth was, you know, set up in 1901. Yes. The establishment uh, did not include blackfellas. So they said goodbye to the Crown. We're going to do our own thing. Goodbye, um, you know, to the monarch. But it didn't include blackfellas. There was no intention to include blackfellas. So it didn't include Chinese fellas. And every other wave of migrants, American sealers coming off to make it their home, they were all treated like outcasts. It was for the Anglo, you know, descendants to acquire more land and then disperse that across their family and friends and then down towards their uh, descendants, you know, hence my great-great-grandfather as well. And it comes off the boat from Yorkshire. Uh, within <laughs> a couple of weeks, he gets a big land out near uh, Tanana. So it was, um, and that's outside of Meribah. So it's incredible. It's like, well, hang on, that's actually my other ancestors' land. So, and then that that equity built into the land, as we know, then doesn't get passed down. So when 
my family, my parents were the first to actually acquire a home through IBA um, yeah, right. for its previous model before. That's, that's yeah. fantastic. Yes. Um, and so um, now that's the first in how many generations I can think of. And even then, um, financial planning and budgeting is something that they've had to, to are still trying to learn. So it's interesting you, you say that. And you're saying about law, uh, for our listeners, L-O-R-E, law um you know what does that mean uh for us it's you know i know for us it's very fragmented so going through men's business or through initiation um sometimes you know that doesn't exist for some communities because the knowledge has been lost but there are others that have so what, what would that mean to you um well i mean as i acknowledge our ancestors and as i acknowledge those elders in my family um I have to acknowledge that, that Indigenous kind of responsibility to their country and to, to my country. I have to acknowledge that, um, you know, they, these are practices that have been passed down and sustained through tens of thousands of years. Yeah. And um, you know, these are obligations that, that carry through to, to, to our people. So out of out of a deep respect until I start on that journey down uh, through law business, then, um, you know, it's, it's only for me to acknowledge the size, the magnitude of that responsibility. Um, mm. so it's something that, that, that weighs heavily um, with Indigenous yeah. peoples. And it's something that um, many more of us are returning to country and returning to to those places and I think that's a, a good thing and I think it's going to really take on a momentum through the coming years and um, I believe the ultimate expression of those will be a you know a time when we will see treaties signed in this country hmm. with sovereign nations uh, based on those traditional laws and customs and, and country so yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I love that and one thing I'm learning um, talking to you know I unpack abuse and trauma in my own life um, and having counselors is a lot of law and um, our culture was actually healthy boundaries and um, it was all methodology and procedure when coming to someone else's country when getting married when becoming a man when having responsibility there was a measurable process where someone would know where they are at that period of time in their life. And that was both spiritually and natural. And yeah. when all of that's taken away and we're told to now be part of a new system brought over that was, you know, hybrid between English and Scottish and yeah. Irish and whatever, whoever else made it here, um, convicts, yeah. you know, um, and we're told to be partakers in that it, it's very foreign. And, and, you know, for me talking to counselor unpacking, and then setting up new healthy boundaries of family, a lot of our family are like not understanding that, but I'm like trying to remind them, hang on, if we had our elders and we've got some elders still, you'd go to them for permission. You'd ask them if you get denied, you would then ask them you talk and request that. And why were you denied? And there's this healthy like system. And I think yep. we've still got fragments that we're still trying to piece together. So like you said, yeah, um, you know, one greater collaboration between mob is needed to make sure we can piece together everything um, um, well, and then to the treaties. And then the, the scary thing, obviously, on the other side of the treaty conversation is once the treaty's been signed, then there's no more, um, hey, ScoMo, 
you know, I need this and that. No, we've signed a treaty. So they're going to be saying, excuse me, that's full and final. So that I think that's exciting, but also um, I think something to look forward in, in respect of our closure for us as a people. Well, the, see, for me, I, I take a slightly different view, and this goes directly into some of my yeah. kind of business and some of my commercial and, and some of the work that we do for other clients is I... I you know, we've got some some fundamental elements which will not change, which are immutable. So firstly yeah. is um, our people are from this country, from this land. Yeah. Uh, so no matter what document or what consent or whatever uh, agreement is reached, um, our people will, will always be from this country. And then um, we as descendants will always be able to trace uh, our lineage back to this country. So that so that will not be changed. Um, I, I, I know a lot of people in the sovereignty movement talk around sovereignty never ceded, um, yeah. and obviously it's something that you can't give away. Almost, it's our birthright. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's it's impossible to give away sovereignty, but the consent to cohabit and to, to you know to to live together yeah. is something that that is within our grasp. And in business, um, and certainly when we start looking at what opportunities are there, we have to think about a concept which I which has been pioneered by uh, Edgar Villanova um, from North America around decolonizing yeah. wealth. Yeah. And so the, the element of this idea that wealth is a white thing um, yeah. is, is, you know, is, is something that we need to unpack because one of the things that absolutely is one of those immutables again is, is our peoples across many hundreds of sovereign nations across this continent uh, lived lives of abundance. Yeah. And, uh, um, the, the, the abundance and that wealth that our peoples enjoyed um, was carried through and expressed in things like um, the richness of our, of our cultures, the, yeah. the amount of time and effort our people spent on law business, um, the, the fact that um, we existed and related to each other in ways um, that never saw one fort, one embattlement, yeah. one castle, one physical yeah. expression of military aggression. Desire for advancement of weaponry. Yeah. But, so, you know, our peoples had, had found ways to, to relate and to exist with each other on, on country which generated abundance. And so there's wealth there that that is the the precise opposite of the colonial narrative. Yeah. And so really what I see coming with our emergence into business and commerce is I see the resumption of practices that were traditional. I mean, yeah. our peoples traded and commerce was part of our existence for those tens of thousands of years. Yeah, that's it. Um, and so those behaviours and practices, um, you know, we ultimately, Indigenous Australians, were the ultimate negotiators. Yeah, um, that's it. And they negotiated coexistence. They negotiated sharing resources. They negotiated um, managing country uh, collaboratively yeah. for the for the benefit of, of all that were that were on that yeah. country. And we talk about um, you know international affairs. You know our mob up in Arnhem Land with their trades with the Malay people of uh, Indonesia. Yes. Yep. We were then on sell and retail that to the Chinese people and. Um, 
in their harbors. And when I went to Shanghai, the Museum of Shanghai, I saw some maps, ancient maps that had parts of uh, Indonesia and parts of Australia. So they knew this was uh, as what we know as Australia. Um, you know, they knew it was here. Uh, yes. Cook knew it was here. That's why he had secret, uh, you know, missions to go <laughs> and do that. Oh, we don't. Oh, he discovered it. It just happened upon it. No, they knew something was down here. Uh, you know, we had Captain Pedro uh, Fernandez before that called this uh, title, this the Great Southland of the yes. Holy Ghost. And he was there 100 something years before that. And by yes. the time I think Burke and Wills made it across, they were finding blonde haired, green eyed um, Aboriginal people. Which, uh, later, they believed it was many Dutch that uh, had shipwrecked on the Western uh, coast for. Um, you know, hundreds of years. So um, it was always here and it once was and always will be. So I was trying to sweep it under the rug. Um, it's incredible. Yeah. And like you said about our people are very peaceful and passive. I always find it um, unseemly when our people can get, uh, we can get quite emotional, aggressive. I find it's it's not our character and it's a position that yeah. we put ourselves in because of the such trauma and hurt and pain and we're trying to get that yes. out and try to communicate how we feel and our, our perspective yes um but i find our people are so um you know in a natural surrounding so relaxed so calm so you know inclusive uh yes we're not perfect like every other people um but yeah i think there's i think there's something to be said that going forward our, our nation to be a good you know blend of what we bring as a people the, the traditional owners the sovereign owners and what um, you know, our other inhabitants who have come here over the uh, the decades. So I'll go straight into uh, your business now. Um, yeah. Try, and try to give us a, a snapshot of um, how you sort of ended up into where you are. I know so eye to eye global is what you're you're focusing on now. Do you want to share how you know what that is and and how you got there? Yeah. So eye to eye global, the eye to eye is indigenous to indigenous. And um, the company was started in 2018, and its its ambition was to become a supplier and a contractor into the Department of Foreign Affairs in their yeah. official development assistance program, so their aid program. Yeah. Um, so it had been going for a couple of years, and then um, they had been successful in in securing kind of parts in very large DFAT contracts. And I to I then went looking for a CEO uh, to help the company manage its period of growth. Yeah. And so um, I, they ended up in discussions with myself. And yeah. um, by that stage where I was in my executive career, I wanted to be able to, again, contribute to a, a, an Indigenous company that was growing. And yeah. I also wanted to have a piece of that success and so um, I started looking at private companies um, yeah. and I started looking at a way for me to be able to grow a company and to grow my own personal wealth as yeah. a result of my efforts as an executive. And so we ended up um, coming to an agreement um, about, about 15, 16 months ago. Yeah. And um, so I started here in about, it would have been a, as the CEO, it would have been about a year ago, so yeah. uh, maybe just over a year ago. So, and, you know, the company itself uh, subcontracts. It's um, one of the largest Indigenous companies into um, DFAT's aid program. Yeah. And we also spend time on the domestic side, um, 
preparing and, and bidding for work with domestic agencies. Yeah. So um, wow. yeah, one of the standout things about how we do our work is that we engage predominantly Indigenous professionals as the, as the contract deliverers. Yeah. And so yeah. that's something that's really important for me. So we have a national network of consultants and Indigenous professionals, and then as the work requires it, as the tender requires it, we assemble teams of Indigenous professionals to do the contract delivery. So, yeah, um, which is yeah, which is good in theory, and, and yeah. takes a lot of effort and practice. Though. Yeah, I think it'd be quite difficult, you know, also working in the Indigenous business space with uh, getting talent. Uh, indigenous talent who are actually available because <laughs> so, uh, there's so much opportunity uh, and it's a booming sector it's very difficult I find to yeah, secure the talent and um, obviously keep them long term yeah and you're right and and that for us is something that we pay attention to all the time um, it's also why we partner with so many indigenous companies so mm. if we can't recruit the professional, then maybe we'll recruit a company, an Indigenous yeah. owned company, and then we use them as part of the, the consortium. So yeah. Um, this, yeah, this is kind of, it's, it's kind of deliberate in, yeah. in our business model because one of the things that stood out to me is that uh, when I was doing the strategic analysis of where DFAT was with its supply chain and how many Indigenous companies it was using, I formed a view that you know, DFAT uh, wanted a diversity of Indigenous companies, not just to be beholden to one or two large yeah, Indigenous companies. Yeah. So with that in mind, I sought, sought very much to support other Indigenous contractors yeah um, so that for me i wanted to be able to contribute and work with indigenous partners so that we could grow our businesses together because i felt that in the end dfat wanted more indigenous companies not yeah. just one or two large ones and would you have some uh, like examples of some of the work um you know the day-to-day -day that you do or some of the projects that you guys have been a part of uh, so far yeah yeah, so um, I'll give I'll give two examples. So uh, one is in the DFAT space, and it's um, the Pacific Labor Facility. So yeah. people will know of kind of the system that's set up whereby Pacific Islander work, workers come over and work in regional and rural Australia. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of the largest programs that are funded by DFAT, and yeah. um, DFAT has contracted that to be managed by a company by the name of Palladium. Yeah. And and then Palladium in turn, uh, we invited us to join their bid. So yeah. I2I Global talked around worker welfare and worker wellbeing and yeah. how we as an Indigenous company could support those workers once they moved into those regional, um, those yeah. regional yeah. jobs. So we're the only Indigenous company that's contracted into Palladium on the Pacific Labour Facility. And uh, we've worked through the last three years to support Palladium in the management and in particular around worker well-being and, and yeah. um, worker safety. Yeah. Um, I think no one else would be better than in a position than another Indigenous First Nations organisation who understand what it's like to leave country and family to yes. a foreign culture. And because yes. we've got sensitivity around my ancestors, Kanakas, the South Sea yes. Islanders, they're yes. sort of also a very uh, fragile 
you know, sort of situation where you don't want to, you know, been seen abusing that or seen in the wrong light. Yes. And and that's something that we took very seriously. And, you know, we believe DFAT saw that same strength. And so for us, it's it's our very it's our intention very much to support DFAT in a way that's authentic yeah. and support other brothers and sisters from other Indigenous countries um, in ways that are respectful and honourable as well. Yeah, it's fantastic. So that was that was one, and then last year. So so we get to March of last year. Um, about eighty five percent of our revenues for the company are derived yeah. from from multiple subcontracting arrangements arrangements into DFAT's overseas aid program. Yeah, yeah. And then we start getting advice about and, and, and advisories from the department about COVID. And the, yeah. then they started talking about, well, we're going to need to repatriate advisors and, you know. The, yeah, yeah. And so we did some scenario planning early in March and our yeah. worst case scenario had eventuated within 20 working days. Oh, no. So of course... There's no international flights. There's yeah, yeah. Everybody that's an advisor has to be repatriated oh, back no. to Australia. Yeah. Those programs can't be delivered. Yeah. Um, contracts themselves are actually paid in arrears based on deliverables yeah. and milestones. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're not in the field, if you're not actually in country delivering a contract, then you, you've got no basis for invoicing. Wow. So, um, you know, that, that was dramatic uh, and unheard of. And so after having two or three days of being sad for myself that here I yeah. was running <laughs> an indigenous company that had prospects just to evaporate, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. what have I done? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. You, yeah, yeah. You, you know, what's, what's ahead of me? So after two or three days of feeling sad and in a funk around that, I um, yeah. came up and I went, hang on a minute, if we're, if we're hurting... Yeah. Then other people must be hurting as well. If our business yeah. is, is is you know has been buffeted, then others must be. So how can I help? How can yeah. I help one of those? So at that time, um, I'd worked on a on a concept and um, reached out to one of our clients um, yeah. and said, "Hey, you know, have you had any left field ideas?" And uh, the, the the CEO at the time said, uh, "No, but what you got?" And so I pitched an idea around a structural adjustment facility to support Indigenous businesses that were in um, that yeah. were in difficulty because of COVID. Yeah. Um, in turn, that, that germ of an idea or that seed um, was then developed and then other, other elements were put into that. And yeah. what, what eventuated was the Minister Ken Wyatt um, announcing yeah. a COVID business support package worth $50 million. Yeah. Um, through yeah, wow. Indigenous Business Australia. And yeah. so IBA um, went to market and, yeah. um, you know, we were invited to, 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 to bid for yeah. being a manager of that facility. Yeah. And so I went through March and April and in April I was kind of got to that very, very sad place where I'm actually telling contractors and staff yeah. that we've got no work for them. Yeah. And you know, I had to, you know, stand people down. You know, that's very stressful and a yes. very good thing for anybody to do. to do. Yeah. And then we went from that to May 
where we'd been appointed co-managers and standing up a team and yeah. re-inspiring most <laughs> people. Excellent. It must have been so, so um, you know, uh, you must have been so glad to call everyone back up and, hey, guess what, you know? Yeah, it is. come back. And uh, did everyone come back? Yeah, and then yeah. more. So we end up standing up a team of 18 on this contract. Yeah. Um, I had to have business experience, you know, and, and, yeah, and yeah. You know, some subject matter expertise. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we ended up sending a team of 18 personnel um, across the country. 16 yeah. of the 18 were Indigenous. Um, yeah. in, our, in our management team, um, yeah, our right. management team were four. Um, three of the four were Indigenous. Um, yeah. And then... Of the three Indigenous executives we had leading on the contract, um, um, between us we'd been to MIT Sloan yeah. Management School, Harvard yeah. Business School, INSEAD Business School in France. So, yeah. <laughs> so now you have to do uh, all the local work. You have to call yourselves I2I uh, local. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fantastic, Dan. It's, I think that's a good news story. Um, and one of those where you've, you know, had to just change course and I think get on the, get on the blower and pitch a few crazy ideas and see what seed, uh, you know, comes to fruition. I think that's, yep. uh, you know, always, I think there's not such thing as, as a stupid question, you know, mm -hmm. only stupid answers. Um, so we'll go towards now, you know, what's the future for, you know, going back into global work with other Indigenous to Indigenous, um, you know, firms? And then what do you think locally um, with the, you know, the Aboriginal business space, Indigenous procurement policy and that sort of thing? You know, what has, you know, COVID reshaped and, and, you know, what do you see happening in the next couple of years? Well, there's two two big initiatives which I'll, I'll quickly cover. Uh, so the first of those is um, as part of our international work with DFAT, um, the other half of the department is the Department of Trade. And yep. so um, and those engagements allowed us to start working with DFAT around their inputs on trade agreements. And so last year um, we saw the culmination of a, the better part of 14 months worth of work and, and an extension of efforts that have been made across the last 30 years by Indigenous interests around international trade. Uh, so we've, we've, we've engaged with the department, we understood what their brief was, and then I worked to build up and, and created a network for Indigenous interests in, in investment, trade and export. So it's yep. an industry base, it's non-government, and it's very much designed to support Indigenous companies that have ambitions for export markets yep. and or to source additional investment capital to grow their businesses. Yep. So uh, with that in mind, um, we then proceeded with a couple of things. So the first of those is uh, last August um, we... We sat down at a trade negotiating table with uh, DFAT diplomats and for the yep. first time ever had Indigenous interests represent, represented in a trade negotiation. Yeah, how could that? In 2020. It just so happens that it's for a proposed free trade agreement between Australia and the UK. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Cycle. So for me, the prospect. <laughs> Full <of> circle. <laughs> they can they can take things now legally through the rights. Well, of well, one of the one of the best lines I've ever had in my life, and I'm really good at coming up with great lines the day after <laughs> the meeting. But this is 
first time in my life I actually landed it, and I take no credit for it. I believe the ancestors worked through me to deliver this line, but we had, <laughs> we had the English diplomats and the trade negotiators on one side, and we'd done the introductions, yeah. and we'd gone around, and we got to me, and, and I was the first Indigenous uh, participant to speak, and so I said, oh, it's great that we're here um, to, to, to discuss the free trade agreement. Um, yeah. I think we've already taken care of the free part, the UK got a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad to be participating in the trade part of the discussion. <laughs> what was their so, faces like? Very you, imagine English, if you said that. Very, yeah. And very white people <laughs> turning pale white as the blood drain. <laughs> oh, wow. But the, 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 the truth of it is, is that free trade agreements are important pieces of international, um, of, of, of national policy. And yeah. so free trade agreements and investments very much guide the national interest and we try to secure the national interest um, through these instruments and through this policy. Yeah. And so the UK-Australia free trade agreement um, does have that unique uh, dimension to it. And yeah. for the very first time ever, it will have Indigenous interests in the trade negotiations. Yeah, beautiful. However, it's another thing for us to secure Indigenous inclusions. And so there's yeah. a lot of work to be done to do that. But and so what do you think would be the low-hanging fruit to get um, some of our mob exporting to uh, you know, England? What's, what's one of the wins early, you know, runs on the ball that we could get straight away? So I've got, I've got two I would, I would suggest. So the first thing is manufactured goods. So yeah. indigenous companies that, that can manufacture goods which yeah. can be shipped, you know, yeah. relatively free of yeah. any COVID restrictions. Um, yeah. you know, in light of the way we are in the circumstances today, uh, those indigenous companies that manufacture goods that can be shipped into that UK market um, yeah. have got a distinct advantage. Um, yeah. There are quite a few indigenous companies, for example, that use indigenous botanicals in skincare products or cosmetics yeah. products. Yeah. Um, we also got some Indigenous companies that are developing foodstuffs as well yeah. with Indigenous ingredients. So, so both of those are, are, you know, represent uh, direct opportunities. So the second one I'll, I'll, I'll flag, though, is, is a little bit uh, unusual. So yeah. free trade agreements cover both the export of goods and services from yeah. Australia to, to the UK or in, anywhere, and then the other thing they cover is the inflow of investment capital. Yeah. But that's from investors in the UK into Australian businesses and enterprises. Yeah, okay. yeah. So at the moment, the value of that trade to Australian companies is $160 billion a year. Yeah, wow. That's $160 billion a year. Only $30 billion of that is goods and services yeah. exported by Australian companies. The lion's share of that amount, $127 billion a year, is direct foreign investment capital from the UK invested in Australian enterprises and companies. Yeah, okay, yeah. And so what I think is a, the, the, a distinct opportunity now, and it goes back to that that element of sovereignty and that, that idea around us exercising yeah. sovereignty, we are now, as Indigenous interests, if we can negotiate access to that channel to the UK we will have an opportunity to talk to UK investors about proposals and projects on our country where Indigenous people yeah. are the owners of those projects. Yeah, wow. And, and that, you know, if we're successful, 
Well, let me put it this way. If we are failures for 99% of the time, yeah. 99% of our pitches, you know, fall on deaf ears. Yeah. And if just 1% of them get funded, then we could inevitably see about $1.3 billion worth of investment capital flowing into yeah, indigenous wow. enterprises. Yeah. Now, large-scale renewables on country, mining developments, um, yeah. we start looking at what's coming in renewable energies. Um, yeah. All of those large projects could be financed through investors from the UK through an Australian-UK free trade agreement. Now, why is that? You know, that's... 1.3 billion, that's a number, who cares, it's a number. I can tell you now, the combined amount of capital that's made available as direct investments to Indigenous enterprises and businesses today from IBA and the ILSC yep. is about $100 million a year. Yeah, wow. And that's the combined pool of capital they have as direct capital to invest into Indigenous enterprises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. $100 100 million a year. Yeah. The UK free trade agreement alone could yield 1.3 billion a year. Yeah, well. Yeah. Now, large scale projects are going to need large capital. And for the yeah. first time ever indigenous peoples that are proponents of ventures or development on their own country could have access to a source of capital and investment to finance that development. Yeah, well. Wow. So we could have two roads now appearing. We could have um you know, mob now being able to access uh, from alternative uh, incomes, which is amazing um, with people who are experienced, um, you know, and they could get what uh, you know, whatever their ambitions are. And the other route is we could just have um, black cladding on steroids. So <laughs> where people are now, you know, already questionable and uh, trading culture for cash and all of a sudden they get this huge injection of roids and um, it's going to turn into a beast. But hopefully it's the, uh, you know, the former. You know what? We are not the first Indigenous peoples to be confronted with such dilemmas and yeah. very serious issues. We yeah. have Maori brothers and sisters in Aotearoa. Yeah. We have First Nations and and First Peoples in Canada and America. Yeah. Um, and they themselves now are managing their estates worth the billions. Yeah. So the value of their estates are in the billions. And they are managing those estates and creating wealth for their peoples. Um, yeah. You know what? I, I, if it's possible for other Indigenous peoples to do it, then it's possible yeah. for us to do it. And yeah, there will be inevitable stumbles and challenges and pitfalls. Yeah. But frankly, you know, nothing that our people, I yeah. don't think, you know, I think our people are capable of meeting those challenges yeah. and moving forward. Yeah, I'm very, I'm the same. I'm very optimistic about this sort of, uh, you know, Gen 2, I, f I find myself Gen 1 of the Aboriginal business sector, 2005, uh, you know, coming, I mean, 15, sorry, coming out from the IPP. I come yes. into the picture in 2017-18, so I'm sort of late to the party. Um, I'm between Gen 1 and Gen 2 of Aboriginal entrepreneurs, um, and I'm finding now the Gen 2 and the Gen 3, the next generation who are coming through, uh, are going through Melbourne Business School, are going through Mara, you know, um, are coming from, you know, from managing positions on the country, now into uni, now back out to country, uh, yep. working in corporates. So, yeah, I'm very optimistic. And you know, like you said, with our First Nations people in Canada, you know, managing billions of dollars, 
Um, you know, it's a scary thought, but you know, our people managed this land before. Now it's just in a different form of currency. So that's right. We used to co-manage a whole continent. That's it. That's it. And trade relations and everything. So thanks so much, Darren. It's um, um absolute pleasure coming on. I love the way how you can explain something that is quite uh complex. And I think for a lot of mob, we hear trade, trade, you know, agreements, trade routes, millions and billions of dollars, and we're like, oh my gosh, what does that even mean? You know, all I do is sell pepperberry. So I think it's really good um to explain that. I think a mob can feel inspired that hey, there is so much good things that are happening um, for our people and uh, yes. to take eyes off some of the smaller negative things. So thanks so much yes. for coming on, bro. All good. All good.